Good morning, everyone. It is it's great to see you once again this morning. Welcome you. We're going to turn to God's word in a moment, but let's just pray first. Father in heaven, we we just come before you. We, we just settle our hearts. And we just ask that you would speak to us once again today. That through your word, that you would shape us and you would you would make us more and more like like Jesus. Help us to follow you with with everything that we have. We pray that in your precious name, Lord. Amen. Every every justice, every every court system has got a duty of care to protect its citizens. It's true today, and, and it was also true back in Roman times. But all too often, corruption can infect a system and can actually make justice more of a dream rather than a reality. And Paul is about to discover this for himself. In this chapter, we will see the Roman legal system at work. Bear in mind... Paul has already faced two trials already. In Acts chapter 22, he's given a speech to defend himself before the Jewish crowds in Jerusalem. In Acts chapter 23, he defends himself before the Sanhedrin, also in Jerusalem. And then now here in chapter 24, he faces his third trial, which is before Felix in Caesarea. The chapter begins with the details of the accusations led against Paul in verses 1 through to 9. And it's worth noting that, that Roman law was, well, just as complex as our modern law system. And it, and it took really an expert to understand it and to know how to apply it successfully in order to win a case. So to read through this chapter, it may help you to imagine that you are a member of the jury and that this is a proper courtroom drama being played out right before your eyes. On one side of the court, we have an expert lawyer, Tortillus. He's been hired by the Jews who have come down from Jerusalem to bring their case against Paul. The judge is Felix, who is a Roman governor. And then there's Paul. Well, Paul's the defendant He's got no legal assistance. He's doing all of the talking for himself. So let's read what Luke or how Luke describes these events. This is Acts chapter 24. And we're going to pick it up in, in verse, verse 1. Five days later, Ananias, the high priest, arrived with some of the Jewish elders and the lawyer, Tertullus, to present their case against Paul to the governor. When Paul was called in, Tertullus presented the charges against Paul in the following address to the governor. You have provided a long period of peace for us Jews and with foresight have enacted reforms for us. For all of this, Your Excellency, we are very grateful to you. But I don't want to bore you, so please give me your attention for only a moment. We have found this man to be a troublemaker who is constantly stirring up riots among the Jews all over the world. He's a ringleader of the cult known as the Nazarenes. Furthermore, he was trying to desecrate the temple when we arrested him. You can find out the truth of our accusations by examining him yourself. Then the other Jews chimed in, declaring that everything Tertullus said was true. 
Tortellus is, is, a skilled, is skilled at his job. He, he, he begins with the customary flattery, a normal part of the judicial routine. After all, he knows that before he's going to be able to win his case, he will need to win over the judge. So he compliments Felix about the governor's many reforms that, he says, has brought peace to the land. However, this course is not entirely true. It was true that Felix had dealt with some of the results, re revolts, but he, was, he had certainly not brought peace to the land. Bear in mind, it was felt necessary to use something like five or nearly 500 soldiers as an armed guard to protect Paul on his journey from Jerusalem to Caesarea, which, if we're honest, does not really portray a country free from danger. Unfortunately, as this trial goes on, you will see how this prosecutor brings the accusations against Paul, which are really no more truthful than his flattery. Now, there are three main allegations here. The first is this. It's a personal allegation. He says that Paul is argumentative and that he stirs up the crowd causing violence. In very simple terms, Paul's bit of a pest. Now, of course, depends on your point of view. For, from a Jewish perspective, who were desperate to maintain their traditions, Paul was indeed advocating something new, and for them, this was trouble. As for the Romans, well, they're really afraid of anything that's going to upset the delicate peace of the empire. So, at face value, the reality was that Paul had a long and consistent record of causing trouble. Wherever Paul went, <laughs> there seemed to be either a riot or revival. However, if you take time to examine the facts, you will discover that the real source of the trouble does not come from Paul, but from the Jewish leaders who were following Paul from city to city. They were the ones that were stirring up the crowds. Not Paul. The second allegation is, is, is a political allegation that Paul was a ringleader of a cult. The political allegation is, is, is much more serious than any of the others because no Roman official wants to be found guilty of allowing illegal activity that's going to upset the status quo. Rome had actually given the Jews freedom to practice their religion, but they also kept a very close eye on them in case in case they used these privileges to actually weaken the Roman Empire. So when Paul is branded as a dangerous ring leader of a cult, it would have certainly caught the governor's attention. Of course, the statement was a complete exaggeration. <laughs> but then I'm sure this is not the first time that someone has attempted to win a court case by stretching the truth. The third allegation is the doctrinal one. Paul is accused of coming to Jerusalem to desecrate the temple. And this third accusation has to be handled with a great deal of care for two reasons. The first is this, it actually implicates a Roman officer who has saved a man's life. We read about him back in chapter 22, he stepped in to stop Paul from being whipped. But secondly, and as a I guess as a general rule, Roman officials like Felix did not want anything to do with 
cases involving Jewish law. They felt that the fewer Jews ending up in the Roman court system, the better it really was for the whole empire. So Tortillus had to present his third charge in a way that made the Jews look good without making the Romans look bad. And actually he does a good job at this. To begin with, he softens the charge. The accusation made by the Assyrian or by the Asian Jews was that Paul had polluted the temple. However, Totilus accuses him of trying to desecrate the temple and and because because he knows that the Jews had authority when from Rome to arrest and to prosecute those who had violated Jewish laws, Tertullus argues that if Claudius had not intervened, the Jews would have tried Paul themselves, and this would have saved Felix and Rome a great deal of trouble and expense. Again, of course, none of these allegations are the real truth. So what is actually true? At this point, Felix could have stepped in. He could have cross-examined Paul for himself. Instead, he just nods his head as a signal that it is now Paul's turn to, to speak. And so Paul then presents the facts. This is in back in verse 10, Acts 24, we see Paul's response. The governor then motioned for Paul to speak. Paul said, I know, sir, that you have been a judge of Jewish affairs for many years, so I gladly present my defence before you. You can quickly discover that I arrived in Jerusalem no more than 12 days ago to worship at the temple. My accusers never found me arguing with anyone in the temple, nor stirring up a riot in any synagogue or on the streets of the city. These men cannot prove the things they accuse me of doing. But... I admit that I follow the way which I, which they call a cult. I worship the God of our ancestors and I firmly believe the Jewish law and everything written in the prophets. I have the same hope in God that these men have, that he will raise up both the righteous and the unrighteous. Because of this, I always try to maintain a clear conscience before God and all people. After several years away, I returned to Jerusalem with money to aid my people and to offer sacrifices to God. My accusers saw me in the temple as I was completing a purification ceremony. There was no crowd around me and no rioting, but some Jews from the province of Asia were there and they ought to be here to bring charges if they have anything against me. Ask these men here what crime the Jewish High Council found me guilty of, except for the one time I shouted... I am on trial before you today because I believe in the resurrection of the dead. And you'll notice that Paul does not flatter Felix, nor does he insult him. He merely acknowledges that the governor was a man of experience and therefore, therefore knows what he's doing. And Felix is actually very familiar with the way which is what Christians were called back then so 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 after this brief introduction Paul proceeds to answer the charge that Tornelius has brought against him and he sticks to the facts when he was arrested he, he wasn't causing trouble and in, in fact quite the opposite he was completing a purification vow and, and 
And Paul wasn't preaching in the temple or in the synagogue, nor was he preaching anywhere else in the city. So, so once he has defended the temple charges, Paul deals with, with the charges of heresy. And Paul's argument goes something like this. Being a Christian does not mean that I worship a different God from the God of my fathers. It means I worship the God of my fathers in a new and a living way because, because the only acceptable way to worship God is through the Lord Jesus Christ. In fact, the foundation of my faith is found in the Old Testament scriptures. It is the Old Testament prophets who bear witness to Jesus Christ. You see, Paul and the early Christians did not see themselves as former Jews, but as fulfilled Jews. They were now able to read the Old Testament with fresh eyes because they had found the Messiah. And, 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 and they knew that they no longer needed the rituals of the Jewish law in order to please God. However, in all that Paul does, you will notice he takes great pains to always seek to please the Lord with a good conscience. So this idea that Paul had come to desecrate God's house was just crazy. How could Paul possibly be worshipping God and yet at the same time be dishonouring God's house? It just doesn't make sense. The, the only accusation actually against him that, that is in any way correct is that he is a follower of the way, which they may call a cult, but which Paul fervently denies. In, in Paul's closing remark, you, will, you can almost detect a little bit of sarcasm. He, he says to them, if I've done anything wrong, it's, it's probably this. I have reminded the Jewish council of a great Jewish doctrine, the doctrine of the resurrection. And this, well, this is going to cause some trouble because the accusers were both a mixture of Sadducees and also Pharisees. The Sadducees had always condemned the doctrine of the resurrection, whereas the Pharisees believed it, but often did not give it the practical importance that it deserved. Of, of course, they will know as well that Paul is relating the doctrine of the resurrection to Jesus Christ, and none of them, none of them will be happy about that. And as you've listened to Paul's defense, did you notice that central to his speech is the gospel? Although Paul certainly needs to establish the facts of the matter to defend himself, he also goes beyond this. He, 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 wants, he wants to point to the real source of the controversy, the gospel of Jesus Christ. Jesus is the fulfillment of the law. He is the hope of the resurrection. But of course, to many people, he is foolishness. This is why they oppose him. So listen. The centrality of the gospel is just as critical today to our Christian faith as it was back then. 
you must never neglect it. You must never forget it. You must never move away from it. And you must apply it to your life each and every day. So having, having heard Paul's defence, we now, we now read the response from Felix, the governor. So we're just going to dip back into chapter 24 and we're now in verse 22. At that point, Felix, who was quite familiar with the way, adjourned the hearing and said, Wait until Lysias, the garrison commander, arrives. Then I will decide the case. He ordered an officer to keep Paul in custody but to give him some freedom and allow his friends to visit him and take care of his needs. A few days later, Felix came back with his wife, Drusilla, who was a Jew, who was Jewish. Sending for Paul, they listened as he told them about faith in Christ Jesus. As he reasoned with them about righteousness and self-control and the coming of the Day of Judgment, Felix became frightened. Go away for now, he replied. When it's more convenient, I will call for you again. He also hoped that Paul would bribe him, so he sent for him quite often and talked with him. After two years went by in this way, Felix was succeeded by Porticus Festus, and because Felix wanted to gain favour with the Jewish people, he left Paul in prison. I guess if ever, if ever a man failed both personally and Officially, Felix was that man. He couldn't make a decision. So he decided to wait until the Roman commander who had been involved in the events of Jerusalem came to Caesarea. In the meantime, Paul is under arrest. But given some freedoms, to, to be fair to Felix, he, he does make sure that Paul is comfortable, cared for and, and safely guarded. However, Paul is limited Freedom in the palace would probably have involved him being chained to a soldier. But you can be pretty sure that Paul <clears throat> uses this as a great opportunity for the gospel. And, and the reality is that every six hours he gets a new guard to talk to him about Jesus. Paul also takes the opportunity to speak to Felix as well. He, he speaks about his faith in Christ Jesus and we are told he concentrates on three areas in particular. The first is righteousness. The righteousness that we receive through faith alone in Christ alone. Secondly, self-control, which, which is one of the fruits of the, the Holy Spirit. And thirdly, judgment. About our final judgment before God. And Paul simply covers what it means to become a Christian, to, to live as a Christian and, 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 and that final salvation that we receive through faith in Jesus. And Felix seems interested enough to listen to Paul. However, it is more likely that it is maybe his Jewish wife who keeps asking Paul back because Felix is scared. When, when Paul gives Felix three compelling reasons why he should repent and believe in Jesus Christ, the gospel scares him. And Paul's point is this. You need to do something about yesterday's sin. See, sin is, is, is not a phrase that we use very much these days. It, it, it's sort of been replaced by mistake or weakness or error. 
the truth is the truth is that most of us don't like facing up to the reality of sin within our lives. And we live in a society certainly that has become desensitized to sin that we maybe and that that's really also infiltrated the church. So we can easily convince ourselves that sin itself is somewhat outdated and it can even redefine it as something like this, that sin is not really sin unless you get caught. When I was growing up on the, the farm with my with my twin brother, we we just enjoyed playing out in the in the farmyard. We we spent most of the day out there and everything to us was a bit of a competition in those days. So sometimes when we needed to go to the bathroom rather than actually rushing back into the house, we would just just sort of pee up against the wall and but even that was a competition. So we stand against the wall and we could see how high we could weigh up the wall. And the, and, and the key, of course, to this, you had to get the right angle, the right projections, all about the mathematics. Got to take in wind conditions, of course, as well. The last thing you wanted was, was splashback. But most importantly for us, we wanted to make sure that nobody saw us. Because in our minds, what we are doing is quite normal, acceptable behaviour as long as we don't get caught. And I can guarantee that many of you have this sort of childish sort of view of sin. You, you, you think sin is somewhat okay as long as you just don't get caught. And, and yet God says, be holy as I am holy. In Galatians chapter 5, we are told to put to death the flesh with its passions and with its desires. And, 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 and you need to be ruthless with your selfishness and your sin because God is calling you to live like Jesus, to be righteous. In Romans chapter 12, verse 2, it says, do not, con do not conform to the patterns of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, then you'll be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing and perfect will. And this transformation, it's more than just an outward change of conduct. It is a deep, penetrating work of the Holy Spirit. It should affect the very core of our being. It's the change of your heart, your intellect, your affections is a change of your will. It, it begins It begins when you call out on Jesus to save you. But although this is primarily the work of the Holy Spirit, it involves the active, earnest pursuit of holiness without which, Hebrews 12, 14 says, no one will see God. The second thing that in Paul's sermon that he deals with is this idea of self-control. Again, this is the work of the, of the Holy Spirit within your life. Jerry Bridges in his book, The Pursue of Holiness, describes this sort of internal warfare um, that goes on within us between the flesh and, and the spirit that, that Paul also describes in Galatians chapter 5, verse 17, that this battle is normal within the Christian life and, and there's these internal fights against temptation that, that comes against us. And I hate to tell you that it doesn't matter how long you've been a Christian or even how much you've grown spiritually throughout your life, that desire of the flesh is going to battle with the desires of the spirit. 
If you don't believe me, read James chapter 4, verses 1 to 12. You need self-control. But this, this spiritual transformation requires you to have what Jerry Bridges, I think, helpfully describes as a dependent responsibility. Throughout the Bible, there are commands, there are exhortations for you to take responsibility for the way in which you live. You can't just say, let, just let Jesus live his life through me. No, you are responsible. However, at the same time, you are completely dependent on the Holy Spirit to work in you and to enable you through his power to do the work that you must do. And it's so important that we understand this. In James chapter 2, verse 14 to 26, it makes it very, very clear that faith is only faith when it's lived out. And you have a responsibility to act, but it is a dependent responsibility, trusting God and obeying his word, even, even when it doesn't make sense, even when sometimes it seems crazy, you are responsible for your pursuit of holiness and self-control, but you are also, you're also completely dependent on the Holy Spirit for his enabling power. It's what D.A. Carson calls grace-driven effort. He writes, people do not, will not drift towards holiness apart from grace-driven effort. People do not gravitate towards godliness, prayer and, and obedience to, uh, sorry, people do not gravitate towards godliness, prayer and obedience to scripture faith and delight in the Lord. Instead, we drift towards compromise and we call it tolerance. We drift towards disobedience and we call it freedom. We drift towards superstitions and we call it faith. And we cherish the indiscipline of loss of self-control and we call it relaxation. We slouch towards prayerlessness. We delude ourselves into thinking that we have escaped legalism. We, we slide towards godlessness and we convince ourselves that we have been liberated. See, no one, no one accidentally becomes godly or holy. This is not something that we just simply stumble into. This requires effort and a heart that every day seeks to hear from God. But human Effort alone will always fail you. You need to be so careful that, that you don't step outside of grace and try to earn what Jesus has freely given to you. It, it is only the grace of God that enab and the enabling of the Holy Spirit that will keep us. It is grace-driven effort. It is dependent responsibility that shows that faith is real. And it is, is a mystery as to how he works in us but he does work in us and, and and he enables you to work to pursue righteousness and to be self-controlled and that is not it's not a mystery then the third thing that paul mentions is the judgment that is to come again this is something that we don't probably talk enough about at times you must take tomorrow's judgment seriously. It's very likely that Paul told Felix and 
Drusilla, what he told the Greek philosophers back in Acts chapter 17 and verse 31, that God has set a day for judging the world with justice by the man that he appointed and he proved to everyone who this is by raising him from the dead. You see, Jesus is either your saviour or he is your judge. And one day each and every one of us will stand before Jesus. So, so let's not be foolish. Let's not procrastinate like Felix did. Felix knew that he was a sinner, yet he refused to, to break with his sin and to obey the Lord Jesus. He had, he had a dangerous attitude towards God's grace. And even though God was long-suffering towards Felix, he would not surrender. So though the gospel, the gospel moves him emotionally and and he is, you know, he even becomes fearful. He doesn't want to change. Because fearful emotional responses are simply not enough. You must also be willing to repent of sin and trust in Jesus as your saviour. It turns out that Felix's real motive was, was money. Felix is hoping for a bribe from Paul, which of course never happens. So instead, so instead he, he, he keeps an innocent man in prison for two years. However, he makes an even greater error of judgment and that decision affects his own soul for all of eternity. There's a parable that's told by a doctor, Clarence McCartney, about a meeting in hell goes something like this. Satan calls his, his leading demons together and he commands them to think of a new way to lie to people. I have it, one demon said. I, I, I'll go to earth and tell people that there is no God. It never works, said Satan. People can look around and see that there is a God. I'll go and tell them that there is no heaven, suggests a second demon, but, but Satan rejects that idea. Everyone knows that, that there is life after death and, and, that they, and that they want to go to heaven. Let's tell them that there is no hell, said a third demon. No, conscience tells us that sins will be judged, Satan says. We, we need a better trap than that. Quickly, the, the fourth demon spoke. I think I've solved your problem, he said. I'll go to earth and tell everyone that there is no hurry. Today is the day of salvation. Today is the day of opportunity. Because you do not know what tomorrow will bring. We don't know if there will be a tomorrow. And the best time to trust in Jesus Christ is now. The best time to tell others the good news of the gospel is right now. And we need to step up and listen, if you don't know Jesus this morning, you need to invite him to come into your life. You need to repent of your sins turn from them and, and turn to the Lord Jesus Christ. But also, 
Church, we need to be telling our friends, our family, the gospel, the story of what Jesus Christ has done for each and every one of us, that by faith we can have and know eternal life. This is not something we should be putting off. There's an urgency, an urgency here. So as we finish, I want to pray. I want to pray for you if you don't know Jesus yet, you would come to put your trust in him. I want to pray as well as if you're a follower of Christ that we would take our responsibility seriously in how we share the great hope of the gospel with those that we meet this week. Father, we just bow before you once again. We acknowledge our need of you. Father, I want to pray for anyone listening either on Zoom or after this on YouTube. Lord, Holy Spirit, begin to work. I pray, Lord, for conviction of sin. I pray for repentance and for faith to come now in Jesus' name. If you're not a Christian, why not just ask Jesus to come into your life? Tell him you're sorry for your sins. Acknowledge that he is Lord and God of all. And that you want him to be the Lord of your life. And just invite him to be in charge of all of everything of your life. And Lord, I want to pray then for my brothers and sisters. And I want to pray for myself as well. Lord, open our mouth that we may speak truth. That we may speak the gospel in love. That this week that we would take every opportunity that we can to present Jesus to those that we meet. We ask that in your precious name, Lord. Amen.